Let me uh, say a prayer for us and we'll jump right in because we have a really timely, controversial kind of topic tonight. It should be fun. Lord, thank you for bringing us together. Grateful, Lord, that we can study your word together, whether it's remotely or here in, in person. I pray, Father, that all that we do would help us to increase our understanding of your word. And I pray that that would move into our affections and our love for you and our love for others. And I pray that it would make its way into our hands and that we might be your hands and feet in the world. Father, I can't help but pray for unity in our nation and in our world. And as unlikely as that seems, nothing is impossible for you. I pray that you would turn the hearts of our leaders to you. And I pray that we would be a beacon of truth and righteousness. Father, that uh, as we turn to you, you would bless us to be a blessing to others. In Christ's name, amen. Well, here's our number for, as always put up, for questions. So text those in during class, wherever you are. If you have questions. Uh, Ephesians is an interesting book because... This letter, written to Christians almost 2,000 years ago, and what we've been talking as we go through it, whether it is the fact that God chose us and redeemed us and sealed us with his spirit, or that we're saved by grace through faith, when it came to chapter four, that we should live our lives in a manner worthy of the calling that we have, that we should pursue unity amongst the brothers and sisters in Christ. All of those things are as relevant today as they were uh, back when this letter was first written. But we've been camped out in a little section in uh, chapter five and six that moves from unity in the body to talking about certain specific social relationships. Because becoming a Christian or being adopted into God's family or entering the kingdom of God. Those are all synonymous things. Becoming a child of God, following Christ, becoming a member of the kingdom of God on this earth that's expanding on the earth. When you enter that kingdom, it changes relationships. And so there's a passage that has some pretty, by the way, these things were all controversial in the first century, and they're still controversial but for the exact opposite reasons today. And so I've outlined this passage, and this is where we're working right now, is he says that as you live the Christian life, you should be filled with the Spirit. What does that mean? It means that you are no longer captain of my own destiny and my own fate. Is I want to hear what God wants me to do. I want to be about God's business in the world. And it's the Spirit of God that prompts us, that guides us, that molds our, our affections, our desires, our heart, our loves, if you will. And so being filled with the Spirit means lead a Spirit-led life. Lead a life that acknowledges God and wants to be about His business in the world and leaving behind my own ambitions, which were inherently selfish ambitions, and being about God's business. Well, the way this is, you have all these participles afterwards that give you examples of how. Well, one way to be filled with the Spirit is to addressing one another in psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs. God's people have always been singing people. The book of Psalms, 150 psalms in the Old Testament, they were all sung. I mean, they're poems, they are recited, they're read, but they were sung. They were the hymn book, if you will, of the Jews and the hymn book of the early church as well. 
And he said, that's one way to be filled with the Spirit is let the words that come out of your mouth be God's words. A singing and making melody to the Lord in your heart. The idea of let's be a praising people, let's be a rejoicing people. Giving thanks is another way that the Spirit will lead you. Giving thanks for always and in every circumstances to God. And then submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. We spend a lot of time on this, but that's, that word is very specific. It means that submitting is something that you do voluntarily. And so voluntarily submitting to one another. In other words, in the interest of peace and unity, we want to be very forgiving and submitting towards one another. What are some examples of submitting toward one another? The way this is outlined is exactly the way the Greek text reads. Well, one would be wives to your own husbands as to the Lord, meaning you may have a really good husband, you may have a, well, you know, not quite so good husband, but these social relationships aren't based on whether the person deserves this. It's based on your reverence for Christ and what Christ has done. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church. Sacrificial love. So we spent some time talking about this and the idea of what's behind this is the idea of sacrificial love and the idea of voluntary submission. Those are the two things that it takes to kill the self-centeredness in me. And so marriage is really one of God's mechanisms to make us holy. And when I say holy, I don't just mean well-behaved. What I mean is make us more like Jesus in our affections, in our desires, in our loves. And so we spent some time on that. And so you can see it's getting into some of the intimate and important social relationships. And God has a design for some of those social relationships. So, first passage was, wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. And if you remember, what we talked about in this passage was that secular and worldly relationships are fundamentally based on control and power. The way of the world is fundamentally, if you, if you think about history very much, that jumps out at you. And we'll talk about this more in a minute. But basically, the idea, and it, it starts with the fall of humanity, is there's, there is a control fight between Adam and Eve and the man and the woman. And you get this sense that uh, there's an awful lot of relational power dynamics. But God says, we're not going to do that. That's not the basis for the kingdom. The kingdom is not about power. It's about peace. The kingdom is not about competition. It's about being teammates. And so this is a summary of what we talked about in our last lesson when we talked uh, about marriage. And then I'll just do a drive-by on this because we didn't talk about it last time. But for children, it reaffirms a, it basically says in the kingdom of God, children obey their parents. And they obey their parents because this is what God commands. Honor your father and mother is the first commandment with a promise. And it says, fathers, do not provoke your children to anger. Don't aggravate them, but bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. This was a little countercultural at the time. It wasn't countercultural that children should obey their parents. That may be countercultural now, but it was, that was pretty normal in, the, in that time. But what was not normal is that fathers had an obligation to their children. 
I mean, in those days, children were pretty much property. And children, while people loved their children, not like you think uh, today. It was not uncommon to sell your kids into slavery, and we'll talk about that in a minute. It was, this was not an uncommon thing. And so it, it, the relationship there was really different than the way we think about it in 21st century America. And the idea that, that you actually needed to do things for your children for their good rather than your benefit, very countercultural. Don't exasperate your children. Instead, they are gifts to you to steward, bring them up in the knowledge of the Lord. That was very countercultural. And so, but it says in the kingdom, this is how things are done. So in this lesson, I want to move on because the scripture moves on. And I want to talk about, it broadens this now from outside the family to broader social relationships. And this is basically about social justice, relationships outside and with the outside world. And it uses the, the idea of slavery as a, a template, if you will, for how Christians are supposed to go forward in these broader social relationships. For example, in the early church, there were some who thought, well, Jesus is gonna come back really soon. We don't need to be married anymore. And I know this sounds kind of crazy, but it was actually a thing where people would say, well, we're not gonna be married anymore. We're individual Christians, and we don't need to have kids. We don't need to do any of that because Christ is gonna come back and destroy the world. And it says, no, marriage, your marriage is part of the redemptive plan of God. Others would say, well, when the kingdom comes, we know that slavery and cruelty and oppression are not part of God's kingdom, so all the slaves should run away. And anybody doing something bad, we should get our swords out and we should go fight and we should overthrow the Roman Empire. That's not the kingdom teaching, but you can see how people are asking questions. This changed everything in my life. How does it change my social relationships? Well, he's answered about marriage, answered about child rearing. Now he wants to basically broaden this a little bit. So let's talk about social justice for a minute. Most people agree on a vision for social justice. Now, not everyone agrees on that. That's a, that actually, if this were 10 years ago, I would have said almost everybody in America agrees on a vision of social justice, and that is equality of opportunity for every citizen of America. But that's not 100% anymore. Now there are some who would say that the vision of social justice is equity of outcomes for everybody in America. And that's why I say not everyone would agree, but still a large proportion of people agree that we want social justice, that we theoretically don't want oppression, that we somehow want everyone to thrive. That's one of the beauties of, of the United States of America. That assumption isn't there in a lot of countries. So on the vision of social justice, there's still a lot of agreement. There is very little agreement on how we should go about doing that and how we should get there. Well, as you would expect, God has a view of how you get to social justice. What is social justice and an agenda for making that happen? And that's where we go from here. So as I said, we're at the very end of this passage of being filled with the Spirit, 
One of them is submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. And one of the ways in the broader social relationships is this. Servants or slaves obey your earthly masters and masters treat your servants well. You both, remember, you both have the same master in heaven. So before we dive into that a little bit, I wanna talk about um, the institution of slavery and the fact that slavery was a huge institution in the ancient world. I'm gonna suggest to you that slavery has been a part of human civilization ever since there were at least two humans, right? I mean, slavery is part of all of human history. It's not a unique thing. I know that in America we're fixated on our particular past and the blemish on our country's history, but I wanna take a broader view of this and that is that slavery in, in one of its various forms has existed throughout time, but it was a hugely important relationship. It, it's hard to know in the Roman Empire, there are a lot of estimates of how many people were slaves, but huge percentage of people were enslaved in the Roman Empire. There were some civilizations where there were more slaves than there were citizens. And so it's a big deal. I think that's part of why this is such an immediate question. He could have talked about a lot of things. And he does, uh, in other places, God gives us direction on how do you relate to your government? Look at Romans chapter 13. How do you relate uh, to authorities and different things? And you do get instruction, but here, when he's talking about these social relationships, picking slavery actually makes a lot of sense because everybody was involved one way or another in slavery in the ancient world. And so that's why I think he picks this. Now, the ancient world, it, it's, there's no surprise about this because the ancient world, and I'm gonna argue the modern world, has the same fundamental basis for these broader relationships. Remember I told you that in intimate social relationships, a lot of the difficulties are that the basis for secular relationships, one way or another, comes back to control issues. Well, in a broader sense, you see the same thing being played out through all of history. Let me give you a couple of examples. Uh, Thucydides was a Greek historian and he wrote the history of the Peloponnesian War. What's the Peloponnesian War? It's a war in the fourth century BC, so a little over 300 years before Jesus was born. And in the north, Athens and all of her allies fought against Sparta and all of Sparta's allies. It was Greek versus Greek, took a long time, unbelievably brutal, long-term war that ended up causing basically the fall of the Greeks for, for a long time. But he wrote this history and it is incredibly detailed history. And so as he's observing this and he's writing the history of this war, and these, by the way, are the most civilized people in the world at that time. These are the Greeks who are most civilized people and they're in a war. And here's his conclusion. It's a famous quote from Thucydides. He said, as I look at this and I look at the scope of history, he says, I draw this conclusion. The strong do what they will and the weak suffer what they must. The strong do what they will and the weak suffer what they must. He says that is the basis of human civilization. It is might makes right. Those who are strongest do what they want. Those who aren't suffer the consequences of that. 
And as you look at history, you, you realize that there's a great, great deal of truth in that throughout history. But let's come to more modern times. In the 1800s, Karl Marx comes up with a very influential theory of human relationships. It's the basis of communism, but it's having a bit of a resurgence in the world right now. And here's Mar what Marx had to say. He said, if you wanna understand all of history and the basis for all human social, social institutions and social structures, it can be defined as the battle between economic classes. That's the essence of Marxism, that's the essence of communism, is that everything can be understood as the battle between economic classes, the oppression of the rich of the poor and the need for the poor to throw off this oppression and own the means of production, et cetera, et cetera, and off comes socialism and communism and those political systems that are trying to re-engineer this structure. Now, if you look at how they re-engineered the structure, they were very, very successful in one thing. They changed who was on top. But they didn't change anything about oppression and oppressor or anything like that. Seriously. Why? Because Thucydides was right, and Marx was partly right, and that is that power and control are fundamentally at the basis of human institutions. A little later, right around the turn of the century, was Friedrich Nietzsche. Friedrich Nietzsche is best known, well, I don't know if he's best known for this, but he's really well known. He expanded it. He said, no, all of history isn't just about conflict between economic classes. He said, every human individual has a will to power. If you want to understand human beings, they want to survive, they want to thrive, they want to be in charge, they want to be on the top of the hill, they want to look out for number one. That sounds kind of harsh, but actually Nietzsche's very influential philosophy today. That idea is hugely influential today. And so my point is, and the thesis that I'm gonna make without, with just a little snippet here, is as you look at history, if you look at the world as opposed to the kingdom of God, you fundamentally see social relationships based on power. So of course, you're going to have slavery throughout all of human history. Does that make sense? Of course there will be slavery throughout all of human history, but not just throughout all of human history. And I put this chart there because I want to make this point as well. There was not only slavery then, there is slavery now. There are more people enslaved in the world today than at any other time in history just in terms of sheer numbers. And you may say to me, well, Terry, there are more people in the world. I know, but you're missing my point. Slavery is still a thriving business. Do you see what I'm saying? This is rooted not in civilization. You think, well, wait a minute. We don't do that anymore. We're civilized now. We've changed things. No, we haven't. We may have changed who's on top. We may have changed the rules of the power game that's being played, but we haven't actually changed the base situation of what human beings are like. There's still slavery in the world. Three kinds of slavery that I want to talk to you about. Um, and all three of these were in the ancient world. You, you don't see all three of these as much in the modern world, but you'll, you'll see when I go into it. So first there's what's called chattel slavery. C-H-A-T-T-E-L, chattel slavery. 
Chattel slavery was a big thing in the ancient world. It is the kind of slavery that existed in the United States with uh, Africans, African Americans. That was chattel slavery, meaning the slave owner literally owned the slave, they were property. You not only owned the slave, you owned the children of the slave. And you could do anything you want as long as social conventions permitted it. Chattel slavery existed in the ancient world, in the time of Jesus as well, mainly through conquest. So Roman Empire uh, invades some place and they kill most of the men, they lose the battle, they kill a lot of men, they take the women, they take the children, take them back to Rome, make money, sell them into the slave market. They're yours. They're, you own them. That's chattel slavery, okay? That existed in the ancient world. Maybe more common though, and this is what you see a little more reference to in the New Testament, is another kind of slavery, and this was very prevalent in the ancient world, and it's called bond servant. And you'll see a lot of your translations because they don't like to translate the word slave because our history is of like chattel slavery. They had that in the ancient world, but usually the New Testament's talking more about bond servants. So what's a bond servant? Here's what a bond servant is. Is you owe money on your mortgage and you're a farmer and the crops don't come in and you can't pay your mortgage. And so you get foreclosed on unless you can find a way to pay. One of the ways you can pay is you take one of the children and you indenture them as a bond servant. And you say for $1,000 to pay off this loan, this child will be your slave for seven years. So it's a bond servant. It's a, you're, you're indentured for a period of time. You are a slave. And they could do not anything you wanted to a slave because there were social conventions around bond servant. You do anything you want to your own property. Chattel slave. Bond servant, eh, social convention didn't allow you to do anything you wanted to to them, but they basically, you own them for seven years. This is extremely common in the ancient world. In fact, this is extremely common up until very recent times. The patronage system comes from this. Is uh, You could be a bond servant for life because the debt was so big. Anyway, but you could be sold into slavery. And that's kind of this idea of a bond servant. And the third kind of slave is economic slavery. And that's where you're not owned and you're not indentured, but you are effectively prevented from doing anything. Uh, this happened a lot in the ancient world. If you had people that were working on your plantation, big landowners, and they weren't bond servants, or you didn't want to spend the money to buy them uh, as chattel slaves on the auction market when they conquered some foreign people, you could actually employ local workers. Well, if the market was good enough, you could pay them what you want. And you could effectively keep them enslaved in, to you economically. This is actually one of the more prevalent ways in the modern world. If you think back in the early 1900s in America, and in Europe, you basically had people who couldn't afford to quit because they owed money at the company store. You guys are familiar with this piece of history probably. In other words, you were working in the coal mines, you were working in the factory town, 
and you know the people were getting rich off of it, but you bought all your stuff in the company store, they set your wages, and the truth is you could never quit because you always owed money. And you were an economic slave. Uh, this is true what happens overseas today. Uh, this, this kind of slavery happens overseas when you get sweatshops. You get a lot of kids working in a sweatshop and the point is you effectively need to work here because that's the only work in town and you're gonna starve otherwise, in which case you're effectively a slave. So basically those are the three kinds of slavery and, it, and they all existed in ancient times. They still all exist in modern times too, but probably a little more economic slavery is what you are used to. But it's not quite that cut and dried. Here's some pictures from modern times. Enslavement of conquered people, the bottom right are Uyghurs in China. They're slaves. I mean, they are completely under the control of the people who have enslaved them. The bottom left, the top left, and the the top right are more economic enslavement and from economic conditions and uh, child labor until they pass child labor laws. You'd have children, these are coal miners. Those kids are coal miners. And so you know, they would be working 12 hour days in the coal mines and that kind of a thing. So why am I talking to you so much about slavery? Because we have certain preconceived ideas in America about slavery and they're not wrong. I just want you to broaden this a little bit and realize that what, Paul is talking about isn't just an ancient phenomenon that only applied to that time. It's actually addressing a societal issue that has existed in every society. So we might say we don't have chattel slavery in America anymore, and that's true. And we don't allow bond service exactly in that form in America. But we do practice, in some cases, we still practice economic slavery. So the point is, is that what he's talking about is not just about ancient times. And it's not just about slavery as we know. It's talking about a social structure that's always been here and will always be here, okay? So that's why I wanted to spend as much time on that as to understand slavery in its forms through all of society. And at the end of the day, What's happening here? Slavery is an outgrowth of a fundamental truth about fallen humanity and social relationships. And that is that they are fundamentally based on control, which comes back to a fundamental self-centeredness. Okay? That's the way of the world. I'm not telling you everybody in the world is a potential slave owner and everybody in the world is willing to oppress other people but a surprisingly large number are, and almost everyone you know is perfectly willing to wink at it, as long as it isn't under our nose. Now, what am I saying to you? Am I saying something offensive? No, here's what I'm saying. Fallen humanity is fallen. We all need to be transformed. We are in and of ourselves. This is basic Christian doctrine, whatever flavor of Christian you are. Fundamentally, on our own, we are not holy people. We do not live up to God's standard. We aren't good people at heart. We may do good things, but we are capable of unbelievable evil. Just look around the world. Okay, let me pause for a minute. Questions about that before we dive into what the kingdom view of this is. Okay, what would you call people who 
uh, are required to work off debts to the cartel in our current situation, is that considered economic slavery or is it something different altogether? So about people who are required to work off debt to the cartel, I'm thinking drugs when you say cartel and I may no. be misunderstanding that. No, um, people who are brought over by the cartels across the border are, are tagged and required oh. to Oh, yeah. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. The idea of you're, you're basically oppressing people and taking advantage of people. And so they, if you think about what's happening to these uh, migrants coming across illegally and they pay money to be brought across, you've heard enough of the stories of all kinds of sexual exploitation, uh, the idea of children being sold into the child trade. I mean, this is clearly exploitive behavior. Yes. It's a form of, it's a way of enslaving people. You desperately need and want this. I will promise you that I will deliver. You pay me money and I don't deliver. I may sell you into slavery. I may abuse you. I mean, yes, this is ex exploitation. It's another example of fallen humanity being fallen humanity. I mean, this, this is why, this is the world into which Jesus Christ came. You could argue the Roman Empire was worse than today, but you can't argue that it's not the same as today. Does that make sense? It's the same as today. Good question. Well, let's jump into what he has to say. <clears throat> Bond servants, and the word is technically slaves, but I think it's a good translation because the most common kind of slavery then was probably bond, bond servants. Obey your earthly masters with fear and trembling, with a sincere heart as you would obey Christ. Do you notice the commonality here? Husbands, love your wives like Christ loved the church. Is there anywhere in that says, husbands, love your wives if she's a good wife? If she's not, maybe 50%. No, there's nowhere in there, is it? Love your wives as Christ loved the church. In other words, he loved you regardless of how worthy you were, not at all, in my case, in which case, that's the basis. It doesn't depend on their worth. Wives, submit yourselves willingly to your husbands. Uh, it's like, well, wait a minute. What if he's not a good husband? Out of reverence for Christ. Same thing. He says, I don't want you to obey your masters because the institution of bond service is a good institution. Oh, I'm, not gonna, I'm not saying submit yourself to your masters because they're really nice masters and you would love to work for them. He says, do that as you would Christ, not by way of eye service as people pleasers, but as bond servants of Christ. This is a radical reform. I want you to hear how radical a reformulation this is of the, it takes an existing social structure and completely changes the paradigm. That's what the kingdom of God does. It doesn't say, well, you're married, get divorced. No, stay married. You have children, you still have children, but I want you to treat them differently. Are you a slave? Don't run away. They're just going to track you down and kill you. He says, we're going to take it. We're going to redeem these relationships. So when you redeem it, what do you do? You basically subvert it. You say, if you're going to be a slave, you're not going to be a slave now because you had to, because your dad sold you into slavery or you sold yourself into slavery to pay your debts. That's not why you're a slave anymore. You know what you're a slave for? It's like, I'm in the kingdom of God. I, have an, I can inherit everything. 
Remember what he said? We've been blessed with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly realm. That's how this letter opens. It says, you've got everything. Now, while you're here, I want you to, to work for them like you were working for Christ. We're gonna completely shift the paradigm from power to I decided I'm gonna be a good bond servant. That's willing submission to your situation rather than I'm gonna make you be a good bond servant. Oh, you don't need to. Because of my Christ who set me free, I'll work hard for you. You see how radically subversive that idea is? It's like in a marriage. I'm gonna love you, really. Why is that? Because my Lord loved me and you're one of his children, I'm gonna love you like Christ loved the church. Whoa, what a radical reformulation of marriage, right? It's subversive and it radically changes the base of it. Power doesn't show up here at all. Obey your earthly masters or they'll beat you if you don't. That's not what it says. Obey your earthly masters as you would Christ. It changes the dynamic from power to willing submission for the sake of Jesus Christ. Doing the will of God from the heart, rendering service with goodwill as to the Lord, not to man, knowing that whatever good anyone does, he will receive back from the Lord. In other words, what if my master doesn't reward me? Well, that's okay. God has plenty of reward for you. You don't need to rely on your master. He says, whether he's bondservant or free, masters, you need to do the same to them and stop your threatening. Treat them well, knowing that you have a master just like they do. And he will hold both of you responsible for opting out of the power game. That's the way I want to say it. If you're a, a master, if you're a bondservant, God expects the same thing. This isn't a power issue anymore. This is all reformulated in the, in the kingdom way. And there is no partiality with him. This was radical, radical at the time. And of course, it's very radical now for exactly the opposite reason. So let me go to another couple passages while I'm here, because this isn't the only place that this issue and social relationships are addressed. Peter, same thing. Honor everyone, love the brotherhood, meaning your brothers and sisters in Christ, fear God, honor the emperor. Servants, this is a slightly different word. This word is specific to household servants. Most of the girls that were sold into slavery typically sold into household service. Most of the boys, farm, labor, that kind of, I mean, it's just the way it worked in the ancient world. This is more household servants. Servants, be subject to your masters with all respect, not only to the good and gentle, but also to the unjust. This is a gracious thing. When mindful of God, for God's sake, you endure sorrows while suffering. This is now referring back to Jesus. Remember who suffered for you unjustly. When you do that, God will, will glorify that. Uh, Colossians, bond servants, obey in everything those who are your earthly masters, not as people pleasers, but with sincerity of heart, fearing the Lord, not your, you're not serving them because of your master, serving them because of the Lord. Whatever you do, work heartily. Work like you're working for the Lord and not for people, knowing that from the Lord, you will receive the inheritance as your reward. You are serving the Lord Christ. For the wrongdoer will be paid back for the wrong he has done, and there is no partiality. Masters, treat your bond service justly and fairly, knowing that you also have a master in heaven. So I wanted you to see two things out of this. One is the consistency 
of the message. In other words, the Bible is of one, the New Testament is of one voice when it comes to this because the principle, and this principle can be then extrapolated to all kinds of social relationships. You'll see it in everything from the way you relate to the government to the way you relate to unbelievers. It's the same thing. And here's the fundamental premise, is the kingdom is subversive of social structures. It changes the paradigm from power and control to more godly motives, which is peace, justice, because some of these institutions were inherently unjust. Now, it's a, chattel slavery, they, they didn't actually think chattel slavery was unjust. If you were weak enough to get conquered, then you deserve to be sold into slavery. Remember Thucydides, the strong do what they will, weak suffer what they might. They did not think that was immoral. We do, and so does the New Testament. I'll show you that in a minute. But my point is, that was an immoral institution, but they didn't think it was immoral. They thought if you got conquered, that's what happens to you. Bond service, they definitely didn't think that was immoral. You chose to sell yourself into slavery for some fixed period of time. And so they didn't see that as unjust. So in comes Christianity and it says, look, we're going to bring justice to the world not by changing who's in power. This is the key. What did Marx do? What did communism do? Did it free the world? You got a lot of happy people in the world? No. But you don't have the czar anymore and you don't have the president of China anymore. You just put different people in power. And so changing the power structure is not how you redeem a relationship or an institution. That's not how that works. And this approach doesn't say all Christians rise up, overthrow the, the uh, Roman Empire, and we're going to do away with slavery. That's not what it says. It says, actually, we are going to do away with slavery, but we're going to do it by subverting this institution. We're going to change everything from a power economy to God's economy. And you are the emissaries to go out there and do it. The relationships and structures inside the church aren't based on power dynamics. They're based on the teachings of Jesus Christ. And specifically in this passage, what does it look like to submit yourselves to one another? That doesn't mean you do everything. I mean, obviously there are boundaries there. It's not like, oh, I decided that I'll just do everything you ever want. That's ridiculous. The point is though, my attitude is one of willing submission for the sake of peace. In other words, for the sake of Christ and our unity and love for each other, I'm willing to submit my economic welfare by giving. We do that. I'm willing to submit my time by serving and helping. In other words, we willingly submit ourselves and our resources. That's very subversive. That's how you actually permanently change social structures and social justice. So for example, in our country, we want to change certain social justice institutions that are considered the current thinking is Marxist in the sense that the fundamental structure is not between economic classes. It's not exactly Nietzschean. 
It's every individual wants to be in charge and I don't want you to impress me. It's Marxist in the sense it just replaced the categories and, the categories, and now it's about identity groups. It's not even ethnic. It's definitely not entirely racial, it's identity groups. But it's still power dynamics. So what's your solution for social justice? Here's the world's answer in America. Let's just stick with America for a minute. What's your solution for social justice? We need to get rid of the oppressors and we need to replace them with new people. And what do you think is going to happen? Well, when we get in charge, we're going to oppress you. But at least we're happy. I mean, seriously, I know that's not what they're going to say, but that's effectively what's happening all through history. When you play power games, someone has to be in charge. When you're talking about willing submission one to another, it's the gospel of Christ. It's the spirit inside us that's in charge. Does that make sense? This is radical and this is what being a Christian is about. We are opting out of the power game and we're going to transform institutions and relationships by fundamentally just choosing to opt out of the power game. Can you imagine what it looked like? Well, two things in the ancient world that were quite remarkable that uh, secular authors in the first and second centuries and on talked about Christians. Two things that shocked them to no end. One was that when they had their worship services, you would have a free person sitting right next to a slave and the person preaching might be a slave and the person passing the plate might be a rich person. It didn't make any difference. When you came in that door, your social structure power relationships went away. That was shocking. You just didn't hang around with slaves. They were not your social equals. They certainly aren't going to be deacons in your church, which they were. I mean, because in the church, it's like we're out, we don't play that game. That's just not what we do. It's not who we are. That's not what God's family is like. That shocked ancient authors. Second thing that shocked ancient authors was how good a servants Christians were. All of a sudden, they actually believed this and they did it. They said, this is what my God tells me to do. For his sake, I'm gonna serve you. You used to be surly. You used to be lazy. Bond servants notoriously lazy. I mean, obviously, I don't wanna be here. I don't wanna be your slave. I have to be your slave, but I'm not gonna work any harder than I have to. And it was un, not unusual, well, I gotta beat one of the slaves so the rest of them will shape up and they'll do the work. But the Christians, and this was remarked upon, Christians, it's like, these guys are unbelievable. They're awesome. I mean, they're good citizens. They're even good servants. They're joyful. Who ever heard of a slave that was joyful? They weren't joyful about being a slave, but they were joyful because I have eternal life. I've been blessed with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly realms. They believed this and it changed the way they did it. That subverted the whole institution of slavery. I'm not saying it magically went away because there are still a lot of worldly people in the world, but it was, it was remarked upon how remarkable it was. It set the kingdom of God and the world apart. Every, we expect everybody to play power and control games in all of its various forms. And the Christians don't do that. And you know what? There's something just incredibly appealing about that. And so those things really stood out to them. Okay, so you get the idea of what's happening in this whole section, but particularly around social justice. 
But I wanna address one question that just always comes up and that is, does the Bible condone slavery? And the answer to that is no, it doesn't. And at the same time, nothing that you read said, oh, by the way, we're all gonna get together, we're gonna abolish slavery. We're gonna kill all the slave owners or we're gonna overthrow the government. Now, that's just changing one power group for another power group and tomorrow it'll be another power group and that's the way history works. That's not the way God works. God makes changes that are lasting and forever. But here's a really interesting passage. This is also Paul, but it's God speaking. Listen to this, this is interesting. Was anyone at the time of his call, when he says your call, when you gave your life to Christ, you became a follower of Christ, were any of you circumcised, meaning you were Jews? Let him not seek to remove the marks of circumcision. In other words, yeah, I don't wanna get into this. This is a PG-13. But people uncircumcised themselves, right? And so what they did was they did that so that people wouldn't know they were Jewish. Most of the time, Jews did it who left the faith and they wanted to fit into secular society. Paul's saying, don't worry about that. You used to be a Jew, not a problem. Doesn't make any difference. There's no stigma to that because everything has changed here. Was anyone at the time of his call uncircumcised? In other words, were you a pagan heathen? He says, then don't become circumcised. In other words, don't, you don't have to clean up your act. You don't have to become a Jew first. You don't have to follow all the 613 rules. Why? Neither circumcision counts for anything, nor uncircumcision, but what matters? Keeping the commandments of God. Each one should remain in the condition in which he was called. What's he saying here? He's saying that the condition, the social condition, I wanna narrow it a little because he's going to in a minute. The social condition you were in when you became a Christian is irrelevant. <clears throat> in other words, well, I was a poor person before I was a Christian, so I need to work on that so I can be a better Christian. Paul's like, what are you talking about? That makes absolutely no difference. Well, I was a rich person. So I come in, I need to sell everything I own because being rich is really being bad. He says, being rich is dangerous, but it's not evil. He said, that doesn't matter here. And so the idea of being, remaining in the station in which you were called, that's not true of all religions. That's true of Christianity. Your social relationships, your social structures do not have anything to do. Were you a bond servant when you were called? Meaning this is crazy because most of the time bond servants couldn't be part of anything. Don't be concerned about it. But if you can gain your freedom, do so. Isn't that interesting? And watch what he says. <clears throat> For he who was called in the Lord as a bondservant is free in Christ. In other words, this is for your current life. You are actually free. Likewise, he who was free, you're now Christ's slave. You now have a master. There are no free Christians. We have all given over our lives and surrendered our lives to Christ. And he is our master. Paul calls himself in most of the letters, Paul, a slave of Jesus Christ. Well, that was a horrendous thing to say at the time. And he goes, I'm proud of that. Do you know Jesus? You need to know Jesus because you are gonna wanna surrender your life to him too. He is all powerful and he loves you. 
You need to follow him. So this idea that it doesn't matter, we're all going to become fellow servants of Jesus Christ. He said, you were bought with a price, do not become bond servants of men. That's powerful. So brothers, in whatever condition each was called, there let him remain with God. So what's he saying here? The, the point I wanna make is, obviously he's talking about the fact that your social relationships make no difference at all. It, it, God is gonna redeem all of those. He's gonna undermine all of those. He's gonna subvert all those anyway. He said, that doesn't matter. But notice what he says is, if you're a bondservant and you can get your freedom, you should do so. Meaning, slavery is not good. And then he says, do not become slaves of men. You were already bought with a price. You are not your own. And so you know what was expected of the Christian community when you couldn't pay the mortgage and you're the farmer and you're gonna have to sell yourself into slavery? Guess what happened? Like, slavery's bad. We don't do that in this family. Let's take up some money and let's deal with this. That's what they did. And so Christians didn't become slaves anymore. Christians who were slaves, well, they stayed slaves. What am I supposed to do? I promised I'd serve you for seven years to pay the debt. Now I'm a Christian, I'm gonna run away. Oh, Christ says, no, just go serve for Christ's sake. Is this making any sense? But you see how radically different this is? No, does Christianity support slavery? No, it does not. You were bought with a price, you're not your own. You shouldn't enslave, become enslaved and you shouldn't enslave other people. People weren't made to be owned. But how is God gonna address this issue? He's gonna address it by subverting it and he's gonna permanently change it, not just change who's in charge. Make sense? I want you to think about that a little bit because haven't, we haven't touched on that terribly deeply but I really want you to think about, about that idea and how it applies to you and me when we go about our social structures. Should we, here's a fair question, should we speak about injustice? Yes, we should. Because we need to speak truth to a world that needs to hear it. How are you going to change injustice? Well, we could kill all the bad guys. Oh, been trying that ever since history started and guess what? Seems to be an inexhaustible supply of bad guys, doesn't there? That doesn't change things. We're gonna do the same thing he said. We're gonna subvert this whole society. We are going to behave differently. We are not gonna play the power games. And trust me, if we will live that life out, the same thing will happen now as happened then. Tons of people became Christian because they realized this is a way better life. You gotta tell me about your, your Jesus. That's the witness that leads to the kingdom spreading. It leads there because we subvert the systems of the world. Everything you know about the early church, Acts chapter two, Acts chapter four, the idea of they had things in common, they took care of each other, and it talks about how the people saw the way they loved each other, and they treated each other. These people, they don't even know each other, and they treat each other like family. Who doesn't want in on that? The whole world wants in on that. The whole world's looking for that kind of love and acceptance and family. And the church grew exponentially, largely because people looked at the Christians. What did Jesus say? People will know you're my disciples by the way you love one another. Yeah, no kidding, you start acting like a family, you just opt out of these power games, your marriage all of a sudden 
doesn't mean you don't have problems, but you don't deal with your problems like competitors. You start dealing with your problems like teammates. You don't go to your job, which isn't really slavery, but let's face it, some of you have bosses, it might as well be. You know? My point is you go to your job and we complain about how much I hate my job. It's like, well, I tell you what, how about for Christ's sake, you just go work hard. Now, if you wanna look for another job, by all means, look for another job. But while you're there, why don't we just work hard? Be a good witness because we'll do it for Christ's sake. That's what he's telling these slaves. He said, if you can get your freedom, by all means do it. But if you, if you can't, well, you need to work hard like you're working for the Lord. What happens if we start doing the same things in our world? You'll see the same kind of explosion and, and revival. And so it kind of comes down to us. I think this is timely And this talk. He takes the worst situation, slavery, so that you can take that principle and easily apply it to my job or your job. So if it works for slavery, which is evil, then think how much more it will work in our world. And it will. And so the idea is to subvert the systems. And you subvert the systems by doing things God's way and doing things willingly. And that is what will fundamentally change the institutions. Last thing is the degree to which early Christians believed what God said is amazing. I've already told you how they remarked upon the fact that these Christian slaves, it's just unbelievable. Their attitude was radically different. But in a darker sense, when the time came for Christians to be persecuted, and it was a death penalty if you were a Christian, and I think I've told you this before, but the early church historians record some of the, the worst of that, is that if you were turned in, most people, most of the time the Roman Empire didn't come looking for you to be a Christian, your neighbor turned you in and said, I think they're a Christian. They'd bring them up, they'd say, are you a Christian? If you said no, as long as you would worship Caesar and make a little offering, off you go. But if you said, yeah, I am, off with your head. Christians didn't even flinch at this. I mean, it's not just a matter of, oh no, he got caught. Somebody else would say, they'd walk up and they'd say, I'm a Christian too. You know why? Because they so believed that you have been blessed with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly realm. And God chose you before the foundation of the world. Christ redeemed you and the spirit lives in you. And you have an eternal inheritance. You are rich beyond belief. And they actually believed it. And it actually made them live out Countercultural ideas. And I think for us, and I don't mean this to be an accusation, I simply want to say the same truth is for us. If we really believe what Jesus has said, we will live out these countercultural ideas. Now, it's easy to live them out in noble, big ways, isn't it? I remember when I got married, I thought, and I assured my wife, if anybody ever shoots at you, I will take a bullet for you. But until that time, you can't really count on me for very much, okay? So, and that's been true pretty much in our marriage. I'm, I'm there for the big things. I'll take a bullet for you. But this day-to-day stuff and picking up the clothes, no, no. Call me if somebody shoots at you. But you get my point is everybody, Mother Teresa said this, there are plenty of people who will do the big things, but very few people who will do the small things. She said, do small things with great love. This is true for you and me. The hard part of living out this countercultural idea is not 
a big show, it's showing up at work every day and working as though you're working for Christ. It's working through the day-to-day -day things in our marriages and loving your wife in a sacrificial way or being willingly able to be a peacemaker and submit. It's, in other words, living these things out in the day-to-day -day details of our lives are going to change the world more than the big events. And I know that sounds countercultural, but that's how the church grew. The church, if you think about it, the church goes from persecuted in 100 AD to being the official religion of the Roman Empire in 313 AD, 200 years. Well, what big event? There was no big event. I mean, what happened? Well, you know, was there a big rally? You know, did, did a great preacher come to town and the Romans all decided that was the case? Did, you know, Billy Grammas, you know, go and preach or something? No, it was Christians doing day-to-day -day things this way and spreading like crazy that changed the Roman Empire. That's the same thing that's gonna change America, is you and I living this out every day in a subversive way in a culture that's based on power. And that's just not the way we wanna live our lives, okay? That's your assignment between now and next week, is I really want you to think about every detail of your life, what does it look like if I opt out of the world's paradigm for this? And what if I do this really countercultural stuff that Jesus said I'm supposed to do? And let's start to see what happens. Now, the reason that you need to do that in, in, in the next week and you only have a week is because the devil shows up next week. He ends this letter by talking about, by the way, everything I'm telling you about, there is a supernatural being who wants to destroy you and keep you from doing any of this stuff. And next week, we'll tell you how to deal with him. Thanks, guys.